Psalm chapter 4, answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord had set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gift to gather in your name. And we do that, and we welcome you here, and we are so excited what you have to say to us. Speak to us through your word and through this time together. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good evening, everyone. Let's open up to Genesis chapter 16. Let's get, let's get started here. So Abram has been made a covenant. Jo- Josh covered this in chapter 15. The Lord put Abram to sleep and cut a bunch of animals in half. It's a, it's a very strange scene to us modern Westerners. And then while Abram is asleep, a smoldering pot goes through the middle of these animals. And there's, you've got to ask the question, what is, what is going on here? What's, what's happening is this was an ancient way of making a covenant. Two people entering a covenant together would cut animals in half and they would both pass through them as sort of a declaration of, if I don't hold up my end of this covenant, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, may I be as these animals are here. But what's brilliant and so significant about the Lord's covenant with Abraham is that only the Lord passes through the animals. And what the Lord is saying is, is the same thing that he said in chapter 12, I am going to do this. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to make you a kingdom. He's making that covenant with Abraham. And, and the Lord is saying, if I don't hold at my end of the deal, may I be as these animals, which is just an absolute eternal guarantee for Abram. The Lord keeps his promises. And so it says that Abram believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And what we're going to see tonight and, and continuing on through, the, through our study is, is God is good, God is gracious, God's scales tip towards mercy, and he, and he is working with fallen human beings, and over and over and over again, humans fail, and the Lord forgives, and he redeems, and he brings flourishing, and we're going to see that tonight. Even, even after the great declaration, Abram believed God, and it was counted him, to him as righteousness, um, he does something silly, him and, him and his wife both, and so Without further ado, here in chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not given birth to any children. And so this cues us in just to to remember where we're at. The Lord has promised Abram nations. He's promised him descendants that you can't even count by number, and yet him and his wife are unable to have biological children. And so you have this entire narrative that's, that began in Genesis 1 and is going to continue throughout the Bible of this, of this seed, of this one who is coming who is going to stomp 
on the head of the serpent. And we've gone through generation after generation after generation of people. And all of a sudden, we seem to hit what what really looks like a speed bump. We're introduced to Abram and Sarah, and they're unable to have kids. But we're on this story of, but we're heading towards a seed. We're heading towards nations. We're heading to a a promise of, of kingdoms. And so this doesn't make any sense. And it... Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but that's, let's just sit there for a minute. She has yet to have any children. And, and no doubt, I mean, this is, this is starting to weigh on her because she was told. Abram had to have sat down with his wife and be like, guess what? The Lord came to me. I know that we're both geriatrics, but it's coming, man. We're going to have a kiddo. And yet here we are at six, in chapter 16. She'd still not given birth to any children. And so she said, so, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. And so Sarah said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from having children, please sleep with my servant, and perhaps I can have a family by her. And Abram did what Sarah told him. Perhaps I can have a family by her. This is, this is what Sarah wanted. She wanted to have a family. And it's, it's, I think it's worth noting t- two things on, on this, bo- both of which I believe are, are error, but it's just, the, it's just the truth of the matter. In, in this day and age, unfortunately, a, a woman's value pretty much rested on her ability to have children. That was pretty much it. It was her value. It was her status. It was the retirement fund of the family. They didn't have 401ks back then. To be able to, to get taken care of as you got old, you needed a lot of kids to take care of. You needed a lot of kids to run the farm. To run. There was this an agrarian culture. Lots of animals. Lots of work to be done. And they needed lots of kids. So this, was, this, was, this not only was like a, 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 a pragmatic issue, but it also, like, it also affected social standing, which is really, really unfortunate. But it's interesting, if you think about it, that our culture has basically done the same exact thing, but just completely reversed it. We've, we've kind of done the like, oh, family schmamly come on, girl, don't worry about getting married. Don't worry about having kids. Don't worry about bringing life into the, into the world. What it's all about is career. You got to get driven. You got to get motivated. You got to get money. You got to make it to the top. You got to get CEO. You got to make, make partner in the law firm. And I'm just saying that those things both are fine. You can be a professional. You can be a stay-at-home mama. Both of those are work. I, 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 I want to avoid this category of, of thinking as someone is lesser than and this is the story of, of me and my wife. When I met my wife, she was responsible for a lot of money. She was, the, she was the top dog at her company. She managed a lot of people. She managed a lot of schedules. She was responsible for millions of dollars a year that went through her company. She was a, she was a pro. And, I, and she, has, she was always the breadwinner. She always made way more money than me, way smarter than I am. And then we decided to have kids, and she, she stays at home. And she raises Ella, and it's, it's awesome. And so I just think that it's, it's worth noting that, 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 that part of the emphasis here is the social weight that, that even though it wasn't okay, Sarah was feeling. She was feeling the burden of this, the burden that was put on her unnecessarily by the culture around her. And she's kind of waiting for this promise to come true. She's yet to have children. And so she says to her husband, hey, I've got this, uh, this Egyptian servant. Why don't you sleep with her? And maybe, maybe this line that the Lord is talking about can come through Hagar. And, and the thing is, is culturally, this, was not an, this wasn't an oddball request. This is weird to us in the West, or at least it, it used to be. <laughs> uh, 
But not that long ago, this sort of thing would get spoken uh, in, in North America and people would be like, that's, that's taboo, that's adultery. I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna take someone, somebody else to be my wife. But in the time of, of Abram and Sarah, that was, this, was, this was pretty normal in the culture, but Christians don't do what the culture does. That's not, we don't get our rule book from the culture. We follow the Lord. We're obedient to him. And so whatever her mindset was, whatever she was thinking, whether she thought this was just a viable option or if she's starting to panic, we don't really know. But she says to Abram, here is my servant Hagar. Sleep with her and maybe through her we can have a family. And Abram did what Sarai told him. Uh, and he shouldn't have. Uh, but this just continues the theme of human beings taking control of our own lives and denying the promises of the Lord or denying the faithfulness of the Lord, denying his trustworthiness, losing faith in him because it's not lining up with our time frame. Have you ever done something like this? You get panicky and you do something silly? This has happened, I mean, not only just through the story so far, but rem remember what the Lord said in, in, in Genesis 12. He said, I will make your name great. I will do this. And then he emphasized it in chapter 15 with, this, with, the, with the pot going through the, the torn animals. I'm going to do this, I promise. But verse 3 says, so after Abram had lived in Canaan for 10 years, 10 years has passed, and they think, Abram and Sarah think that they need to help the Lord along in his promises. And so just like in Genesis 3, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm not going to listen to the Lord. And Eve ate of, of the fruit. Cain didn't listen to the Lord, and he killed his brother. In chapter 11, we have the Tower of Babel. People saying, let us make a name for ourselves, trying to create Eden, trying to create perfection, trying to create peace and harmony, and trying to create really like an everlasting kingdom apart from him who creates kingdoms. And Abram has, has, has heard the words, I will make you a great nation, said the Lord. And now Abram and Sarah are starting to think, well, I, I need to get involved. I need to help the Lord. And anytime we take, we take matters into our own hands in that way, it's, it's, a, it's, it's at least a bummer, and at worst, it's an absolute tragedy. But this is what they do. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible when you think about this. Take, take matters into your own hands. Don't trust the Lord You've got to do this thing yourself. Where we, one of the places that we see that the most emphatically is with Judas. Judas took matters into his own hands. Judas thought, in his, relying on his own understanding, Judas thought that Jesus was going to be a military power. He thought that Jesus was going to rise up, he was going to bear arms, and he was going to kill Romans. That's what Judas had in mind. And when you get to the end of the Gospels, it's pretty clear that that's not what's going to happen. And when you read in the Gospel of John, it's emphatically stated that Jesus became a wanted outlaw. Anybody that knew where Jesus was was to report it, otherwise they would be charged with aiding and abetting a, crim a criminal. Jesus was a wanted outlaw by the end of his life, and Judas thought, well, you know what? These political aspirations are tanked. Our military aspirations are tanked. We're not gonna, we're not gonna overthrow Rome, so I might as well save my own skin and be the guy who chirps on Jesus. If they're going to be if they're going to be knocking door to door looking for him, then you know what? I'll give them up, and I'll get paid in the process. It's classic 
lack of faith, and taking matters into his own hands. And, and one final thing I want to say about that, because it really is a pernicious thing, is that G- Jesus himself was actually tempted to do this. After he was baptized, and he, and he spent 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted by the devil, we see this clearly in Luke chapter 4. And it's really neat, whenever you compare these two passages, in Luke 4, Jesus is in the wilderness, and one of the temptations that that the devil brings to him is he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. And then he says, if you bow down to me, I will give you glory, I will give you the authority over all these kingdoms and the glory that comes with them. And you might read over that and understand what the devil is saying, but what's, what's what's even more interesting is if you go back to the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel has the vision of the one who is like a son of man, that is one who looks human, but he's elevated up to the throne of the Ancient of Days. And it says that to the Son of Man would be given a kingdom and an authority and a glory and a glory and a dominion that never ends. The devil is actually offering Jesus the exact same thing. It's the same language that the Son of Man has promised in Daniel chapter 7, from the Lord. And so the devil's saying, hey, I'll give you the same thing. You can just bypass the cross. You can bypass obedience. All that, all the rejection, all the shame, all the pain that you're going to have to go through to save these people, you can skip that. Just bow to me, and I'll give you what you want. It's the easy way out. He's tempting Jesus to do the same thing. Take matters into your own hands, It's the same thing he did with Eve. In order to be fulfilled, you actually have to disobey God. He said, don't eat of the fruit because you'll die. No, 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 no. You won't die. The Lord knows that you'll be like him. So eat eat of the fruit. What that means is in order to be fulfilled, this is the lie. This This is the lie that we believe. In order to be fulfilled, I have to defy Yahweh. That's the trouble. And the devil does everything in his power to get us to believe that. He even went for Jesus with that lie. That's pretty profound. And so Abram and Sarah fall into this. And Abram does what he is told, and he sleeps with Hagar, the Egyptian servant. You notice twice Hagar is called the Egyptian servant? We're going to see that, that Hagar gets blessed, and it's really fascinating because we studied a few weeks ago the Table of Nations in chapter 10, and Egypt is a place that, historically speaking, has, has been the, the, a part of the world where a lot of Israel, Israel's enemies have stemmed from, but Abram is to be a blessing to all nations, every tongue and every tribe, to the entire world, it says in, in Genesis 12, and here we get, a, we get a hint of that because here is a woman who is from Egypt. And so her Egyptian servant was given to Abram as a wife, verse 3. And in verse 4, he slept, he slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. And once Hagar realized she was pregnant, she despised Sarai. Here's, here's another thing to look out for. And maybe some of you, can, maybe some of you have experienced this. Maybe some of you have a real-life experience with this. We're going to go through this slow. This, this night might be a little bit long, but these chapters are packed with some real gold. Sometimes whenever we do what we just described for the last five minutes, taking, taking matters into our own hands, defying the Lord and going our own way, it sometimes, unfortunately, seems like it works. It can actually feel for a while like, hey, I'm getting away with this. You know, one of the things that we're going to look at in the, the men's study when we go through Jonah is that Jonah is told to go to Nineveh. He bails. He dips down into Joppa, and he jumps on a ship. And it's, and it's noteworthy that 
there was a ship that was actually available. And, you know, I, I've actually said this out loud. I don't know if I've ever said it to anybody other than to myself, but I've actually said out loud, well, you know, if the Lord didn't want me to do that, then he shouldn't have allowed A, B, and C. If the Lord didn't want me to do that, then maybe I shouldn't have shown up right as the train was passing by. Maybe I shouldn't have been there right whenever that other guy was there who I exchanged phone numbers with, and that led to a whole bad slew of decisions. Maybe if the Lord really didn't want me to do this, he shouldn't have or he should have done something to stop me. And here's Jonah going down to Joppa, direct defiance from the, of the Lord. But he has also the convenience of like, hey, there's a ship. How convenient. My rebellion's working for me. But it never works long. Sin is fun for a season, but the Bible also says be sure that your sin will find you out. Abram sleeps with Hagar, and she becomes pregnant, and it seems like, well, maybe, maybe things are looking up. There's actually a pregnancy. Like, hey, you know, that, that, that's more than we had before, right? Maybe things are working out. Um, but the result of the sin uh, continues, and so Hagar realized that she was pregnant, and she despised Sarai, and Sarai said to Abram, you have brought this wrong upon me. I gave my servant to your embrace, but when she realized, that is Hagar, when she realized that she was pregnant, she despised me. So may the Lord judge between you and me. When that's spoken in Scripture, may the Lord judge between you and me, that means you're in trouble. And this, isn't this, so, again, just pause, isn't this so true that if we get desperate, if we get scared, if we start listening to fear rather than faith, we can do things that, you know, even in the moment we might say, I really want to do this, I really think this is a good idea, but we, we know in our bones it's not. And I think what's happening to Sarah here is that she really didn't want to do this. But she listened to herself. She listened to her fear. She didn't listen to the Lord. And now she's dealing with the ramifications and, she's, and she, the, just the weight of it. I didn't even want to do this anyways. And now we're here. We're stuck. Abram, you're an idiot. And you know what? Abram should have stepped in and been like, honey, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know, the, you know anything about Hagar, but he, apparently, I mean, Abram agreed to this and he shouldn't have. He should have said, honey, we're going to trust the Lord. Remember what happened in chapter 12. Let's hold firm. Hagar is nice, but we're not going to do this. And he didn't do that. He didn't do that. It's, he didn't get, he's not in trouble because he listened to his wife. His wife just at, at this one time had, had, a bad, had a bad idea. He should have stepped up. But notice this. So Hagar realizes that she's pregnant, and she starts looking in disdain or uh, despising Sarai, and this is a really this is a really interesting point, because the word for despise twice it says that that Hagar despised Sarai, and this is this is dangerous, but it also emphasizes the beauty and the grace and the mercy of our God, because the word here for despise is the word kalal. It's it's the word to to think light of, or to think to 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 think is worthless, or to to deal with somebody to like to treat somebody with contempt. And the, so the word kalal is actually the exact same word from chapter 12. Whenever the Lord said to Abram, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who treat you with kalal or curse you or treat you with contempt, I will curse. Hagar is doing the exact thing that the Lord just warned about in chapter 12. She's treating the family of Abraham with kalal, with contempt, treating, treating them as worthless. And what did the Lord say? 
Whoever treats you as worthless, I will curse. But in his grace and in his mercy, look what, he, look what happens. So Abraham said to Sarai, just being a pushover, hey, you know, she's your servant. She's under your authority. Do whatever you think is best. And then Sarai treated Hagar harshly, and so she ran away. Hagar ran away from Sarai in verse 6. And so if you're just, if you're just reading this one quarter of an inch at a time, which is what we're doing at the moment, you might think, okay, Hagar did what was warned about in chapter 12. And, you know, the situation's messy, it's complicated, not, you know, everybody's kind of got blood on their hands here, but she, you know, she treated the family with contempt, and now she's, she's being treated harshly, and then, she, and then she leaves. She flees. She ran away from Sarai, it says. In verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring of water in the wilderness. So she treats the family with contempt, and now she's pregnant and alone in the wilderness. Maybe she's been cursed. Maybe what the Lord said in chapter 12 has taken place. You treat the family lightly, you got to get out of town. But he doesn't curse her. He follows her, and he blesses her. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Look, pay attention to his grace here. She does the very thing he warns about, but the scales are tipped towards grace. And maybe there's somebody in this room who feels like, you know, I, I was warned, I knew better, and I did it, I blew it, I did it anyways, and the Lord met me with his grace. Amen? He meets her, he follows her into the wilderness, and there's a spring of water there. There's always good things happening at springs of water in the Bible. So he met her at a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring that is along the road to Shur. And she, no doubt, Shur is right on the border of Egypt. She, no doubt, was going back down south to go back into Egypt. And the angel of the Lord found her there. In verse 8, he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she replied, I am running away from my, from my mistress, Sarai. So this, this angel of the Lord appears to her. And there's a lot of discussion about, is this, is this what's, what what theologians call a, a theophany. Is this a manifestation of Yahweh in the Old Testament? It's possible. Some think that it's a Christophany. That is an Old Testament uh, appearance of the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity who takes the name Jesus when he's born here, but the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is this, is this him appearing in the Old Testament before his incarnation. And I'm just, I'm, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit on this. I lean, I'm not gonna bet my bottom dollar on it, I lean towards a Christophany. I, I lean towards this being the actual second person of the Trinity coming to visit her because she's at a spring of water. And Jesus is the one who says, you're thirsty. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me, and I will give you water that will spring up into a well of eternal life. Remember, write down John chapter 4. Jesus comes to earth. He's on his way north into Samaria, and he stops at Sychar, and he meets a woman at a well. And she is looking for love in all the wrong places, and he says to her, if you, if you knew who it was who speaks to you, you would ask and he would give you water that would spring up into you, a well of eternal life, and you would never thirst again. And she's, and she's thinking, she's thinking hydrology. She's thinking water. She's like, well, you don't even have a bucket. Where's this water come from? He's, and he's talking about eternal life. So again, you know, I, I can't, I wouldn't die on that, on that battlefield, but I kind of I think 
She went into the wilderness. The Lord pursued her, just like in the Garden of Eden. They sinned, and the Lord pursued them. Adam and Eve, where, where are you? They, he didn't need that information. He knew. He knew where they were. He was inviting them back. And here's Hagar in the wilderness, and he says, he meets her at a well, and he says, where are you coming from, and where are you going? He already knew that. He's inviting her to have, at the very least, a dialogue with him. He meets her at a well. And I love this because the Lord appears and works with people so differently. He appears at different times, in different places, to different people, in different ways. He shows up to Moses in a burning bush. He shows up on, he shows up on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus in a smoking cloud of fire. It's, it's quite scary. You know, whenever you read that story closely, Moses goes into the cloud, and then 40 days later, the Israelites are like, we don't know what happened to Moses. And you're like, you idiots, you just saw what happened with the Red Sea. But if you imagine a, a mountain on fire, and Moses walking into it, it's like, yeah, you know, you sympathize with him a little bit, at least. The Lord shows up in different ways. Acts chapter 9, the Lord shows up the, like the ultimate roadblock to Saul on the way to Damascus, knocks him off his horse, strikes him blind. But here he shows up gentle. He ministers softly and kindly. He knows what Hagar needs, and that's exactly what he gives her. And I love that. You know, you even see it in Jesus' miracles. He does the same sorts of things. He raises people from the dead. He casts out blindness and demons, and he restores limbs, and he heals people from, from diseases and sicknesses, but he always does it in a different way. Sometimes he just speaks a word. Sometimes he touches. My personal favorite is the story where the guy's blind, and Jesus takes mud and spits in, he takes dirt and spits into it and makes mud and then wipes it on the dude's, eye, dude's eyeballs. I just think that's dope. I just think that's dope. I just think that's, a, that's just a cool miracle. I don't know what kind of guy that blind guy was, but he got spit mud in his face to get healed. The Lord will minister to you in a way that is unique to you. And, and, and listen to how this continues. So he, he meets her at a well and he doesn't, he doesn't curse her. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? I'm, I'm, I'm fleeing. I'm running away from my mistress. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her authority. I will greatly multiply your descendants. And then the angel of the Lord added, So that they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord said to her, You are now pregnant. You are about to give birth to a son. And you are to name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your painful groans. I love that. The Lord has heard your painful groans. And in the book of Exodus, when the Lord comes to Moses, he says in chapter 3, the cry of the people, that's the cry of Israel, who are in Egyptian slavery, he says, the cry of the people has come up to me. And I love this because Hagar is clearly not perfect. But she is a precious woman who's made in the image of God, and he goes after her, not because she's perfect, and not because she's so eloquent with prayer or devotion or quiet time in the morning, whatever else. He comes because he heard her. He heard, he heard her groans. Let, let that sit there. Amen, baby. Is that my baby? Let that, let that sit there for a minute. He heard her groans. Verse, verse, verse 11. I have it underlined. Maybe you guys should do that. He has heard your painful groans. The God who holds the sun in outer space and keeps the earth in its gravitational position in the planetary alignment 
heard this woman's groans, this lonely woman who's pregnant in the wilderness, thinking that everybody hates her, nobody likes her, she might as well go eat worms, the Lord comes to her. He has heard her groans. And friends, this is, you know, I, I've been, I was thinking about this a lot this week, and, and, and this, is, this is like, this is where my stock is. I don't know, I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not trying to elicit anything other than just, I'm just trying to be honest that as I was thinking about this, I was like, the reason, one of the reasons why this is so meaningful to, to me personally is because I, I actually was just sort of fleshing some of this out with Darcy White the other day. We just happened to start talking and I, and I, and I brought this up. I have been frustrated in years past because I've got anxiety disorders that I don't understand. I've got depression things that I can't comprehend. I have night terrors. I have sleep paralysis. I have, I have um, insomnia. I've got this weird, this weird claustrophobia where I'll, I'll, pan I'll get into a panic attack just being in a room with people. There's this constant blight of just my, my human frailty always about me, and, it, and it's, it's, it's anxiety, it's panic attack, it's depression. It's just a whole cocktail of a good time. And I've tried to explain it to, to people, several people, and they either just don't get it, or they just, like, they just, like, they can't, they just, like, they either, this like, I don't think that they either, they just don't care, or they just don't, like, they actually can't understand, because this is something I was thinking about. Chuck, when Chuck Bomar preached a month and a half ago, or whatever it was, he made the point not to compare your weaknesses to other people's strengths. Fair enough. I think that's great. I think the other side of the coin is to also be aware to not compare your strength to other people's weaknesses. And I, I have an incredibly embarrassingly uh, large amount of weaknesses. And I've tried to share them with people, and they're either, they're either rare or weird or I don't know. But, I mean, I've shared some of my, like, deepest fears and, and hurts with people, and, like Christians, and they've laughed at me while I'm sitting there talking to them. And I don't think it's because they're malicious. I think it's just because if I explained to you some of the nightmares that I have, some of the reasons why I lose sleep at night, you just wouldn't know what to say. Like, Sorry, dude, that's weird. <laughs> but I take solace in the fact that the Lord hears my painful groans. And people may not understand. Maybe someday somebody will. I, I'm not really concerned about it because Revelation 24 says that he will wipe, Revelations 21, verse 4. Revelation 21, verse 4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no, no more. Neither will there be crying or mourning or pain or sadness for these former things will have passed away. I haven't experienced that yet, but I believe it. I believe that day is coming. And so I don't need so much to be understood. My, the, the, the weird anxieties and depressions that I have don't need so much to be understood because I know one day the Lord is going to vanquish them. They're going to be gone. And the same is true for you. I don't know what you're going through, friend. And I would encourage you, seek counsel. Talk, you know, to people about stuff. I'll certainly never laugh at you because I know what that feels like. And maybe you and I are the same kind of weird. You never know. But the Lord hears your painful groans. And my, my prayer is that even if, even if there isn't an immediate amelioration of the pain here and now, that you would take solace in knowing that the Lord hears your painful groans. He hears you. He sees you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. And so Hagar leaves. She's in the wilderness. She's met by the Lord. He hear, and he hears her groans. And, and, he, and he promises her Ishmael. You're going to have a son. His name is going to be Ishmael. 
verse 12, he will be a wild donkey of a man. He will be hostile to everyone. Everyone will be hostile to him, and he will live away from his brothers. Now, the, the, the surface level uh, thing here is what, what exactly do, he's, a, he's a wild the, the literal Hebrew is he's a wild ass man that's, that's what that means I'm not trying to be cute and funny that's, that's what that means he'll be a wild ass man he's going to live on the fringes he's, he's going to be hostile to people and there's, 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 a, there's a take on the Hebrew that what's being said here is that he's basically going to be a Bedouin he's going to live on the fringes of society he's going to be sort of like this John the Baptist style like he's eating wild locusts and honey and he's kind of avant-garde and weird and he doesn't really fit in with social circles he doesn't get his picture on the front page of kinfolk he's just sort of out there you know and that ishmael is going to be kind of the same way same way or there's the take that ishmael is just going to be like a a barbaric aggressive individual and he's not going to get along with anybody he's going to be a wild man um, a wild donkey of a man and and friends i want to i want to be i want to be careful here because because this does bring up the topic of what's happening in Israel to this very day. And the first thing that I want to the first thing that I want to say is that I have never kept a close eye on what's happening in Israel. I've never kept a close eye on the history of Israel to a certain point. I mean, especially up until, you know, 1948 when they became a nation again, all the way up to today, there's a, there's a lot of that history that is so complex that I just don't I just don't know. And, I, and so since, since I was given this text, and since October 7th, what's happening there in the history of what's been happening there has come to the forefront of my mind. And I've got a lot of work to do. Can I just admit that from the start? I've got a lot of work to do. But it doesn't change the fact, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of things that, that I want to point out, that the, the tension that we're seeing, the, the fighting in the war, this is, this is the origin story. This is where the tension begins. And I'm not one of these people that thinks that Israel is squeaky clean and they've never done anything wrong. I don't, I don't believe that. Uh, Israel are human beings just like everybody else. And the war that is happening there is tragic. It's tragic. And I don't, I don't, stand, I don't stand for what's happened. I don't think that it's good. I don't, I don't really care what anybody's excuse is for why they're doing what they're doing. But, but what I've noticed and I even, the one thing that I noticed, and I honestly think that part of the reason why I sort of kept a distance from the history of Israel and what's going on there in the, in the last 50 to 100 years is because people foam at the mouth. They get so angry about what's happening. It's Israel's land. This was promised to them, and I, and I believe that. But I also know that people have been fighting for any, every reason under the sun since since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. And so what I, and so what I don't, and then, and then we pick sides. Not in, not in like this is, an Israel, this is Israel's land or this is Palestine. We don't, we don't pick sides like that. We pick sides like one of these people are bad. Just universally bad. And what I've, what I've heard people say, is, so here's Hagar out in the wilderness. And the Lord says, I'm gonna bless you with Ishmael. And we know that from Ishmael came 12 princes. He, whole, whole, whole nations have come. And people go, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was, she was quote unquote, blessed with Ishmael. But I mean, the Arabs are just, you know, they're not good people. And I think, shame on you. You don't say that. People are, the, Ar- the Arabs are people. The Israelites are people. 
and, and, and I, I, I've got opinions about what's happening over, over there. I, I, I see things that are hugely problematic, but I can't separate myself also from the reality that this, that this, is, a, this is a human thing. And again, I've got a lot to learn. But where I want to land tonight is, is that the people over there that are fighting and dying are human beings. And we are invited to intercede for lost people. We're going to see that tonight. We're going to see that Abram is invited to intercede for lost people. There's people over there that believe lies about who God is, about what humanity is for, and they're acting according to those beliefs on both sides. We as Christians are to intercede for the lost, to pray for them. This is a time in history when Jesus' teachings like pray for your enemies and vengeance is mine, I shall repay, says the Lord. This is a time in history when those things really come alive to us. But both sides are human beings. I want to say that again and again because I want to, I want to speak away from hatred. And I'm a person, if you've, if you've been at Door of Hope for a while, I have been, I think, pretty honest with the fact that I am somebody who is given over to amorous and violence fairly easily. I'm, I saw a guy wearing a t-shirt that said, give violence a chance. And I was like, yeah, dude, I like that. I'm into that, bro. Let's do it. I'm totally, totally into that. And it's not, and it's not okay. It's not okay. So I have, to say this to my, I have to say this to myself. I have to remember to pray for enemies, to pray for the, for, to pray for the attackers, to pray for those who victimize, as, as well as pray for the victims. We're, we're called to love our enemies, to pray for those who curse us and to speak all, and speak all sorts of evil against us. And I, and I really think that we, need to, that we need to become active in whatever way is possible to, in, to participate in the redemption, in, in the intercession. We're invited to do that. So I don't, know, I don't know where you guys, guys land here, and I think that I've, I've, I've said enough. I, I, I just don't know a whole lot about the subject, but I, knew, I do know that the Lord is for saving people. And, you know, um, I, I watched a part of an interview that was really, I was really ambivalent about. I was, on, like, I was fighting my own flesh. It was an interview with a, guy, with a, with a former ISIS member who got saved and left ISIS. And you, I, you don't get to do that. Like, if he's ever found, he's dead. But he met the resurrected Christ, and he got saved. And when you know the things that, I, that ISIS has done, you can get upset about the fact that people like that can get saved. That's what the whole book of Jonah is about. Jonah says, I knew that you were a God that was gracious. That's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. Friends, can we, can we check that? Can we pray for those? Can, can we see the evil in our own hearts and stop pretending like we're better than everybody? I'm not speaking to you <laughs> specifically, just people in general. We do that. So we're invited to intercede for the lost. And so, verse 13, 42 minutes on one chapter. That I need to get moving. So Hagar named the Lord who, so Hagar named the Lord who spoke to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. For she said, here I have seen the one who sees me, and that is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is located between Kadesh and Bared. And so Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, 
whom, A- whom Abram named Ishmael. Now Abram was 86 years old. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. So remember, Hagar comes to the well, to the spring, and the angel of the Lord says, the Lord has heard you. He's heard your painful groans. You know what the name Ishmael means? He hears us. He hears us. She named the well, it's literally translated, well of the living one who sees me. What, what she, what the, the exact translation of what she says is, did I not go on seeing after he saw me? This is, this is something that, that you see with, uh, that you hear people say when they come to, to have some sort of interaction with the Lord. They're, they're kind of surprised that they're still alive. They have some sort, of, some sort of face-to-face with the Lord and, they, and they still, they're still alive, and they always say, like, I have seen the Lord, and I still live. Now, nobody's seen the Lord face to face, but they see some, some part of him, and she's saying, I have seen him who sees me, and I'm still alive. And she can go back to Sarai knowing that he who has seen me, he sees me. So I can go back. And this is not, I even, I even asked, I even asked some, some, some advice <laughs> on this passage because this, what, what's being taught here is not just a blanket statement if you've been in an abusive relationship, you need to go back. That's not what's being communicated here. This is a specific example to a specific person in a specific context. The Lord is saying, you, are, you can go back. I, I, I think that there was restoration available. Go back and be re- reunited with the family. Don't run off into Egypt. Sarah's, or Hagar's gonna do this again later in chapter 21, and it's almost gonna kill her. She's in a dangerous place. And the story and its complexities continue on, but for here and now, the Lord's saying, go back and be reunited. Not to some abusive relationship that you can't get out of, but go back and be restored. You're gonna be blessed. You're gonna have sons. You're gonna have Ishmael. You're gonna have princes will come from you. So they named him Ishmael, he who hears us. Finally, chapter 17, Abram was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the sovereign God. So Abram in Chapter 16, verse 15 was 86, and now he's 99. 13 years has has passed. The Lord appeared to him and said, I am the sovereign God. Walk before me and be blameless. Then I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and I will give you a multitude of descendants. To be 99 years old in the Hebrew means to be the son of 99 years. I just think that's a cool way of saying it. I like that. He says, I am the sovereign God. The word here is El Shaddai. El means God and Shaddai is like, like a strong mountain. When, when this was translated into Greek, they landed on the term all-powerful. It's where we get our term om- omnipotent. God is all-powerful. He's El Shaddai. He's the God of the mountain. And this is actually the name that he uses when he introduces himself to all of the patriarchs. It says in Exodus chapter 6, the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name Yahweh, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. He introduces himself as El Shaddai and he says, walk. He says, walk before me. To walk, we, we, you, Paul hits on this term hard in the book of Ephesians. To walk is to, is, it's like to walk, but it's how you conduct your whole life. It's to consistently go in the same direction with intention and even with like, like deliberate comfort. Like this is the way that I want to go. This is the way that I choose to go. This is how I'm going to conduct my life. It's, it's described in the book of Joshua as, as, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
We're going to walk. He says, walk before me and be blameless. And you might read that and go, well, wait a minute. Okay, so walk and be blameless. Didn't, didn't, didn't we just read in chapter 15 that he believed and that was, that was counted to him as righteousness? Isn't he already righteous? And there's, there's a lot of discussion about this, but I would just, I would just say succinctly that, that what's being communicated here to walk, to walk blamelessly, because Abram doesn't walk blamelessly from this point on. David doesn't walk blamelessly, but he's called a man after God's own heart. David did some bad stuff, but he's called a man after God's own heart because he's consistently coming back to the Lord. In the book of Job, Job's railing against God. He's angry, he's hurt, he's scared, he's sad, he's confused. And at the end of the story, the Lord says to Job's friends, Job's gonna have to pray for you because you're in trouble. But he says of Job, Job has, Job has honored me. And you read the book and it's like, I don't know if Job really honored the Lord. I mean, you, I mean, you hear some of the things that he said, but the point is, is that Job never deviated from the Lord. He never said, forget this, I'm out. He was hurt and he cried and he screamed and he wailed, but those screams and those wailings were to God. Those screams and wailings were in prayer to the Lord. I say this all the time because it's just true. It's what the Psalter is. The, the 150 psalms that we have, full of pain, full of confusion, full of anger. And every one of them is a prayer. So what the Lord is saying here is stay consistently, faithfully in relationship with me. Abram's going to mess up. He's going to blow it. He just did. And, and he says, I'll con- I will confirm my covenant. Well, he, he already made a covenant in chapter 15, but, but I, I wonder if the Lord didn't repeat himself here because of the, com- the, the mess that just happened with Hagar. The decisions that were just made. The selfish, fearful, doubtful decisions that were just made. If, if the Lord isn't just saying that the covenant, it's still good. It's still good. Remain faithfully in relationship with me. Walk with me. Walk before me. I will give you a multitude of descendants. Verse 3, Abram bowed down with his face to the ground. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer will your name be Abram. Instead, your name will be Abraham. Because I will make you, listen to the next few verses, how many times the Lord says, I will. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. I will make nations come from you and kings will descend from you. I will confirm my covenant as a perpetual covenant between me and you. That word perpetual is the word eternal in Hebrew. I will confirm my covenant with you as perpetual. Uh, It will extend to your descendants after you throughout their generations. I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I will give the whole land of Canaan to you, uh, to the land that you are now, to the land that you are now residing. Uh, It will be given to you and your descendants after you as a perpetual possession, and I will be their God. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. Genesis 15, the smoldering pot coming through the animals. Abram, I'm going to keep my promises. This is, this is awesome. This is antithetical to Babel. This Tower of Babel was an attempt to seek a name, a nation that is everlasting, and the Lord <laughs> scattered them, and then he takes a guy away from his home, away from his resources, away from his network, and says to him, you're going to be an amazing nation. You're going to be a great nation. Count the stars if you are able. More people will come from you, and I will do it. 
And now here we are again. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. This, this be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is being continued through Abraham. Abraham is a, is a new Adam who's pointing to the ultimate Adam. This, this continuation of the seed is going through Abraham. And by the way, I'm super pumped that we got to verse 5 because I don't have the discipline to say Abram anymore. Abraham. It's just so much easier. So we are here. Abraham. No longer will your name be Abram. Your name will be Abraham. I will make you the father of many nations. And so then we get to uh, my favorite my favorite verses in the Bible, actually, if I'm being honest. Verse 9. And then God said to Ab- Abram, as for you, you must keep the covenantal requirement that I am imposing on you and your descendants after you throughout all their generations. So again, we have one of these things. We're like, well, wait a minute. I thought that this was, I thought that this was unconditional. The Lord is going to do this. It's true. The Lord is going to do this. But if, if, you're, if you're in agreement with this covenant, you just have to make a little mark on your body to show that you're in agreement with this covenant. You're going to have to get circumcised. This is what I'm imposing on you. Verse 10, this you must keep. Every male among you must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin. This will be a reminder of the covenant between me and you. And what a reminder it is. Um, you know, there probably doesn't need to be a whole lot said about this, but there's kind of a lot to say about it. It's, this, it's, it's actually pretty amazing if, if you think about it. Um, this this command to be circumcised, to, to put a, a, a mark on yourself, a reminder that you are in this covenant, um, it just seems interesting. And, and he, he goes on to say in verse 12, throughout all your generations, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, whether born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not one of your descendants. Already foreigners are being brought into this covenant, which is, and the sign is, is circumcision, and I just think that there's something to the fact that, and I don't want to, I don't want to be lewd, but just, just, you know, think about it lightly for a minute. Abram is told he's going to be the father of many nations, and then the direct tool that he is given to procreate is going to be marked in his flesh. He's going to have a mark on the very tool that makes children. That's pretty, that's pretty wild. And some even see, some, some even see here the Lord saying, like, the, the, the very unit by which you're going to pro- procreate and these nations are going to come from, you're going to have to cut a piece of it off. Cut off a piece of it for the name of the covenant. Because that would be kind of scary. I mean, if you're thinking about this for the first time, and you're like, well, wait a minute. I know how babies are made, and you want me to, Really? And the Lord's saying, yes, do this. Not, it's, it's an act of trust. It's an act of faith. And it's also, it's also a sign. And, and again, I don't, I don't want to be lewd, but that part of the body, you know, everybody knows that part of their body and what's going on there at all times. We, we, know, we know this. Every time we see a, an America's Funniest Home video of a three-year-old hitting a baseball and hitting his dad right there, we go, oh, because we know. And, and, and so it's a sensitive area. And right there, the Lord is saying, put a mark, a mark of reminder, a sign that from right there where all the nations are going to come, that's where the mark is going to be. I just think that that's a pretty profound thing. And so they must indeed be circumcised, whether born in your house or bought with money. This means it's not a class thing. 
Everybody in your family. Everybody is in the covenant. Everybody who's even, the, even that came from someplace else, some foreigner, anybody that's a foreigner, is to be circumcised. They must be circumcised whether born in your house or bought with money. This, sign, this is the sign of my covenant. It will be visible in your flesh as a permanent reminder. And any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin will be cut off from his people. He has failed to carry out the requirement. I, th- I think what this is here isn't, isn't a, if you're not circumcised, then, then you're cut out of the family. That what, what's, what's really being communicated is if you refuse to identify with trusting the Lord, and you refuse to identify with his promises and his covenant, and so refuse to receive the sign of that covenant, then you're cut off from the covenant. It's that, it's that simple. Um, Paul, Paul uses this uh, in, in the New Testament um, pretty, pretty profoundly. Um, it's it's, uh, it's the, the, the question that rises in the New Testament is, well, do, do we need to be circumcised? Is this something that still needs to be done in order to get saved? Do I need to be circumcised? And the good news is no. You don't need to be circumcised. Uh, if you're a, an adult, this is something that went straight to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. There was people who were running around after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended back into heaven. There was a, there was a group of people running around saying, you're not saved unless you do this act. You need to be circumcised. It went straight to the Jerusalem Council, and they said, no, that's not true. And, and Paul, in, in pretty lengthy detail, goes on in Romans chapter 2. If you want to look into it, write down Romans chapter 2, verse 25. He says, circumcision is, is of nothing. If it's just of the flesh, it doesn't mean anything. Circumcision, real circumcision, is of the heart. Being cut off from the world and, and, and set apart as holy unto the Lord. If you're circumcised in the flesh and you don't believe in Jesus... It doesn't buy you anything. That's a, that's, a, that's a work. But if you're uncircumcised, but you, are, but you believe in Jesus, confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Circumcision ain't got nothing to do with it. But this was a sign for, this was, just, this was a, covenant, a covenant sign for this, for this time. And if you refuse it, if you refuse the Lord, if you refuse the covenant, if you refuse the promise, then you would be cut off from from the family, from those promises. So, verse 15. Now, God said to Abram, As for your wife, you must no longer call her Sarai. Sarah will be her name. I will bless her, and I will give you a son through her. I will bless her, and she will become the mother of many nations. Kings of countries will come for her. So, Abram, Abram and Sarah, Sarai's names are changed as a sign of the covenant. You will now be called Abraham. You will now be called Sarah. And circumcision is given as a sign of this covenant. So Abram bowed down with his face to the ground, verse 17, and he laughed. If I'd been given the instruction of circumcision, I don't think I'd be, I wouldn't be laughing about anything. He says, to, and he said to himself, can a son be born to a man who is 100 years old? And can Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Abraham said to God, oh, but that Ishmael might live before you. I, I think that this is a, not an abandonment of faith, but I do think that Abram's being, I think that Abraham is being challenged here. Remember that uh, chapter 17 um, started off pretty, or excuse me, chapter 16 starts off pretty quickly with saying 10 years they lived in Canaan and Sarah gave Hagar as a wife to Abraham. 10 years had passed. And then 13 years had passed after that. And after those, that, that initial 10 years, 
Hagar gets pregnant. That's a nine-month process. I mean, we're looking at a total of like 24 or 25 years here. And so it could be that Abram's just like, seriously, man, it's been 25 years. I'm 100 years old. And that could, that could be a lack of faith. It could be, that could be a, a weak point. It, it could also be a, a laugh of relief, like, okay, good, the Lord has just said this again. He has not forgotten. He is reminding me that this is actually what is true, despite what I think, despite the circumstances that I'm old, my wife is old, the Lord is still promising me this. It doesn't, it doesn't really say. Um, but but I, I, I kind of sort of lead towards a frustration because he says, may Ishmael be the one. I've got this perfectly good kid right here. He's a, he's, a, he's a young teenager. His name means he hears us. Uh, how, about, how about he's the one that might live before you? But the Lord says no, verse 19. God said, no, your wife Sarah is going to bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a perpetual covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you, and I will indeed, there it is again, I've heard you. And I will make him fruitful and give him a multitude of descendants. He will become the father of 12 princes. You can read the, the names of the 12 princes in Genesis 25, verses 13 through 15. He will become the father of 12 princes. I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant will be established with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. And when he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. And so... Abram, being diligent, being faithful, being obedient, gets busy. Verse 23, he took his son Ishmael and every male in his household, whether born in his house or bought with money, and circumcised them on that day just as God had told them to do. Abram, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. His son Ishmael was 13 when he was circumcised. Abram and, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised on the very same day. And all the men in his household, whether born in his household or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And so now, really interesting point, verse 18. We'll get through this a little bit, a little bit quicker. I know it's been an hour, but I mean, this is good stuff. Yeah, I mean, come on. This is, this is sweet. Chapter 18. So the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the hottest time of the day. Now, I love this. It's, a, it's, a, it's an easy point to miss, but I think this is pretty profound, and it's something that we can take home with us. He's sitting, he's still got his tent pitched by the oaks of Mamre, which means he's been there for a while. He, remember when he pitched his tent there? It was in chapter 13. Ten years have passed. Thirteen years have passed. Ishmael's 13 years old, and he's still there. He's still in the same place. The one who was told, get up and go, has now been stationary for quite some time. It says, he moved his tents to the oaks of Mamre and Hebron and built an altar to the Lord. Genesis 13, 18. And you know what I, you know what I love about this? The, he's been consistent. And maybe, maybe you've experienced something like this. Remember, Abraham pitched his tent at the oaks of Mamre by Hebron, and Lot pitched his, pitched his tent at Sodom. And it didn't work well for Lot. That didn't, it's not going to turn out. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but, but, but there, there is a bit of a, there is a bit of a, of a, of a distinction here between the, the world and, and, and the people of faith. And, and I remember growing up with, with kids in church 
And, you know, I, and I went, I went AWOL for years. Uh, but, but, I, but I came back to the Lord, and, and I've, been, I've been walking faithfully with him for a number of years now. And every once in a while, I'll bump into somebody from back in the day. And what I mean by back in the day is, you know, somebody that I went to church with when I was a kid. And everybody I went to church with as a kid is a flag-flying a flag atheist. And when I bump into them, they, they have this, like, you're still doing that, huh? Really? You, that's, the, that's the hook, line, and sinker that you, that, 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 that you bit on, huh? The Bible, Jesus, <laughs> sin, uh, uh, okay, well, I mean, to each their own, idiot. Like, this, like this, is what the, this is sort of the attitude that, that I come across, is this, like, you're, you're still there. You pitched your tent, you built an altar, and you're, you're, still, you're still there. Huh. Um, friends, may I just encourage you, stay there. If, you're, if your tent is pitched with the Lord, the devil and the world and the flesh are trying their darndest to get you distracted to get you to abandon the Lord, to get you to not trust Him, to not love Him, to not follow Him. In this, in this moment, be, be like Abraham. Pitch your tent, stay put. And, uh, and years might come by. And you know the, the, the opposite side of that coin is that sometimes a friend will have something happen and they start questioning reality, they start questioning faith, they start questioning God. I heard George Clooney say this, not to me personally, but in an interview. <laughs> we do get shy every once in a while. He, he was asked about his belief in God, and he said to the interviewer, he said, you know, when I was younger, I just never really thought about it, but I'm in my late 60s, and things are changing, and I'm getting older, and now I'm, you know, I wonder every once in a while if maybe I should rethink this. Fair enough. Maybe you should. Every once in a while, somebody will come through the, the years and you're sitting face to face with them again, and they are going to be so stoked that you still have your tent pitched by the altar at the Oaks of Mamre. They're going to come asking you. Maybe after their third divorce, maybe after a child dies, maybe after something, they're going to start looking for something, and you might be the person that they call because they're like, you know what? I've always thought it was kind of weird, but that guy has been walking with the Lord for 20 years. I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to see what that's about. So he's got his tent pitched there. He's still there. And he's sitting outside at the hottest time of day, and Abram looked up, and he saw three men. It's interesting. Verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham. But here he sees three men. I'm not convinced that Abraham knew who these three people or these three persons were. They were standing across from him, and when he saw them, he ran from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed down to the ground. And he said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by and leave your servant. Yet let a little water be brought to you so that you may all wash your feet and rest under the tree and let me get a bit of food that, so that you may refresh yourself since you have passed by your servant's home. And after that, you may be on your way. And they said, all right, do as you say. And so we read that and we're like, this guy definitely, Abraham knew he was dealing with the Lord here. Well, in that day and age, the way that Abraham's behaving here really isn't that uncommon. This is weird to us. We see strangers and we cross the street. But hospitality was a much bigger deal back then. People show up at your, at your home and you show them hospitality. Um, but, but I think that it starts to, to change, change real quick. So Abram ran into the tent and he said to Sarah, quick, take three measures of fine flour and knead it, make bread. And then he ran into the herd and he chose a fine tender calf and he gave it to a servant who quickly prepared it. And then he took some curds and milk along with the calf 
that had been prepared, and he placed the food before them, and they ate while, they were st- while he was standing near them under a tree. And then one of them, or they asked him, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, see, here's the thing. This is where I st- Her name just changed to Sarah just recently. Um, so I don't know if Abraham knew who these three were or not. It's a, it's a long conversation that theologians have, and it's one of those conversations that's really interesting, but then after 14 pages of reading on it, you're like, I don't know if it really matters. But it's an interesting thing to think about. But they say, well, they say where is Sarah? How'd they know her wife was Sarah? That, his, that her name was Sarah. And he replied, she's there in the tent. And then one of them said, I will, I will return to you when the season comes round again and your wife Sarah will have a son. How does this individual know about their children's situation? But now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, not far behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were old and inva- advanced in years, and Sarah had long since passed menopause. This is the New English translation. That's the word they used. She has long passed menopause, and so Sarah laughed to herself, thinking, after I am worn out, will I have pleasure, especially when my husband is old too. Now, if you wanted to take the time to get into the Hebrew here, what, what Sarah is saying um, is honest, and it's borderline graphic. Uh, and that may or may not be out of a bad attitude. It, it, might, just, it might just be the facts. Um, this, this term for after I am worn out in verse 12 is, is worthless. This is, this is how she's speaking about herself. After I am worthless, will I have pleasure? Um, I read that and I thought the... the what was being intimated there was, will I have the pleasure of having children? Um, but this word is actually sexual pleasure. Now that I'm old and worthless, am I actually going to have sex with my husband? What's being communicated here is she's like, me and Abraham aren't even having sex. This promise has been 25 years in the making. We're not even having, we're not even doing our, our marital thing anymore. Uh, and quite frankly, I'm 99 years old. And menopause has set in. Like, like no longer is biological children and uh, unlikely now biological children is an impossibility and we should pause there for a minute because remember what the Lord said I will do this and I love this is just true about the Lord he brings life where there otherwise life would be impossible he does it here he does it with Mary Remember when the angel of the Lord comes to Mary and says you're going to be but you're you're betrothed you're going to give birth to a son you're going to name him Jesus and what does she say how? I'm a virgin. He's, the angel says, don't worry about that. Details, details, details. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. I love that. He takes ash and he brings beauty. He takes death and he brings life. He takes barrenness and he produces <laughs> fecundity. He, he produces from a woman who in her own power is unable to do so. He brings life where otherwise life would be impossible uh, and Sarah like her husband she laughs and says now that I am worn out will I have pleasure and here's another thing that I really love verse 13 the Lord said to Abram the Lord said to Abram why did Sarah laugh and say will I really have a child when I am old is that what Sarah said 
kind of. But she was much more graphic about it. Have you ever done this before? Have you ever gotten loose with your mouth and said something that you shouldn't? And somebody with greater self-control and more maturity has repeated back to you what you said but cleaned it up for you? Doesn't it cut? I don't know if that's ever happened to you. That's happened to me a lot. Go figure. But that's happened to me a lot. And every time I learned, like, it was a subtle but firm correction. Don't talk like that. And I love it. I love that the Lord hears her. He knows what she said. He cleans it up. He, he says it back, but then he actually, he actually gets to the core of what Sarah is trying to communicate. The Lord said, why did she laugh? Uh, did she, because, she re, because she said, will I really have a child when I am old? Verse 14, is there anything impossible for the Lord? That's really what Sarah was saying. This is impossible. And with man, it is impossible. But with God, what? All things are possible. Is anything impossible for the Lord? I will return to you when the season comes around again and Sarah will have a son. We don't have the time to get into it, but just take this home and think about it. This bugs me. None of the translations get this quite right. What the Lord says here when he says, is anything impossible for the Lord? What that actually says is, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? That is a gut check to me because I often have the attitude that the Lord's not going to do this because it's what I want. Or the Lord's not going to do this because it's, it would be a good thing. I would appreciate it. I would enjoy it. Do you ever, you ever think like that? And you know, that's, it's a challenge because maybe you might be thinking, well, there's, these, there's this thing that I want. I either want something to go away or I want something to, to come into my life and that's not happening. Friends, I, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a one-on-one conversation sort of thing. I don't know why the Lord may be tarrying in that way. Um, I, I would say what Abraham's about to say in the next section that we're going to consider, is the judge going to do what is right? Will the judge of the, all the earth do what is right? And the answer is always yes. Um, have, have faith in him. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord is what he's saying. You think it's too good to be true that at 99 you could get pregnant? Well, Buckle up, sister, because it's going to happen. So, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? I'm going to come back. You're going to have a son, verse 15. Then Sarah lied and said, I did not laugh because she was afraid. But the Lord said, no, you did. I love that. I love that. It's firm, but it's kind. And Psalms 139, where can I go from your presence? There is not a word that you speak that he doesn't hear. There's not a place that you can go that he's not present. And that can be really, that's really good news and it can also be scary, can't it? Be sure that your sin will find you out. I didn't, I didn't laugh. No, you did. I heard you. But, but let's, let's move on. So the men got up and they looked out over Sodom verse 16 and now Abraham was walking with them to see them on their way and the Lord said should I hide from Abraham what I am about to do remember this the Lord is not being sneaky he's not hiding he's not being secretive he's not doing something behind closed doors should I should I not should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do after all Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will receive a blessing through him I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just and then the Lord will give to Abraham what he has promised 
And so the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so blatant that I must go down and see if, if they are as wicked as their outcry suggests. And if not, I want to know. So the two men turned, verse 22, and headed down towards Sodom, but Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham approached and said, will you really sweep away the godly along with the wicked? What if? Abraham begins here his intercession, this, the, the action of being a blessing to all people. Abraham is stepping into that role. What if there are 50 godly people in the city? Will you wipe it out and not spare the place for the sake of 50 godly people who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the godly with the wicked, treating the godly with the wicked alike. Far be it from you, and here's the question, will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? And so the Lord replied, If I find in the city of Sodom 50 godly people, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham asked, Since I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes, what if there are five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for it lacking five? The Lord replied, I will not destroy it, on the, on, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Abraham spoke to him again, What if 40 are found? And he replied, I will not do it for the sake of 40. And Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry so that I may speak. What if 30 are found? He replied, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, since I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, <laughs> you can feel his anxiety rising. Will you not destroy it? What if 20 are found there? He replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Finally, Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry so that I may speak just once more, what if 10 are found? He replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. And the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. Then Abraham returned home. Um, for the sake of time, let's just... These, these stories bother us this we if if you don't know if you haven't read chapter 19 the lord does send fire and brimstone on sodom and gomorrah and abraham's nephew lot and, and his family are, are saved out of it um, but the lord does send judgment on sodom and gomorrah and and these these stories bug us but but i want us to always remember the question that that abraham asked will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? And the answer is always yes. And, and, and we saw in, in chapter 13, you know, whatever, whatever it, it was, and the, and the Bible does give us some specific examples, and I will, I will share them with, them before we, with us before we close. But what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah was so bad it needed to be judged. And Abraham intercedes. And the question is, why, why did he stop at 10? And there's some ideas, you know, he, he went 50, 45, 40, but then he went down in 10s, and 10 would just be the natural, like, 30, 20, 10, and done. You know, that technically kind of was going all the way down to zero. Um, I, I don't, I'm not completely convinced about that. There, there's some who think that he just got scared. He's like, I, you know, he says it over and over, don't be angry, I'm going to speak one more time. Don't be angry, I'm going to speak one more time. And he got to 10, he was just like, okay, I'm, I'm pushing it, I'm pushing it. Um, and, and if, that, if that's so, you know, the, the Lord's scales t 
turn towards mercy. They, they lean towards grace. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so I, I, I can't say definitively what, what happened here with Abraham, but, but the, point, the point is made, um, and, and judgment is, is brought. Uh, remember in, in chapter 13, even in, as early as chapter 13, Sodom is described, and there, it's described as extremely wicked and rebellious against the Lord. And judge, these, these passages where judgment happens are, are bothersome to us. And I, I, ha, I have a friend who I've, I've had for years, and he, he faithful door of hope guy for a long time. And, and this, I remember this story specifically uh, came up, and he and I went for a long walk around the neighborhood whenever we had a, a, our building over on Hawthorne. And he basically was like, I don't know if, like, he, he was troubled by this. This, this shook him. And, and I, I get it, um, but we cannot, we cannot, we don't understand the mysteries of the Lord. Is the judge of the whole earth going to do what is right? Yes, he is. And we believe in justice, and we believe in, in punishing wickedness. Uh, it just gets uncomfortable whenever we think that it might be us who needs to be judged. Um, and stories like this make us uncomfortable. But, but what's, what's really interesting, um, even with the, the mystery that, that is here, uh, you know, why, why didn't Abraham go all the way? He's like, well, you know what? Lot's there. Would you, would you, would you spare the whole city for the sake of Lot? It, that's, that's not what happens, um, as much as we wish that, it, that that's what did happen. But what's really interesting is that um, when, you, when we get to that story next week, Lot is taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, can I go to the city of Zor and reside there? And the angels are like, okay, fine. And Zor is, is spared for the sake of Lot. And, and some might say, well, yeah, but you know, Zor wasn't Sodom and Gomorrah, but, I, but the cities around Sodom and Gomorrah were, were sort of thrown in with the mix. In, in Jude 1-7, we, we read this. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and persuaded a natural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. It says Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities fell under, fell under this. Um, and here in, in Jude, it says, it says the sin of sexual immorality. In Ezekiel, write this down, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, it says, Behold, this was the guilt of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, they had an excess of food, and they had prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor or the needy. So it's, it's, a, it's a whole bag of things that, that they're being judged for here. And the cities that were surrounding them were in there. But Lot goes to Zor, and Lot is, Lot, Zor is spared because of Lot, because the scales tip towards mercy and tip towards grace. And, and I think just in closing, now that I'm an hour and 20 minutes into this, I'm sorry, guys, but I'm not. Um, in closing, is the judge of the whole earth going to do what is right? I, I am one who is burdened um, to implore people to trust the Lord, whatever the circumstances might be, whatever the hurt might be, whatever the confusion might be, I, I uh, you know, if I'm a pastor for the rest of my life or if, if I go and, and 
work as a sous chef somewhere. I, my burden is to, is to get people to really believe and trust that God is good. God is good. And the areas where we don't understand him, we need to, we need to trust and not, not put ourselves on the throne of judgment. To be, to be the arbiters of judgment, but to, to trust what, what, the Lord, what the Lord does. And, and we're going to cons- consider Sodom and Gomorrah next week when Josh is back. Um, but just as, as, I, as, I, as I close in prayer tonight, I just, I, I, the, the parts of this that I really loved and really want to highlight is, is Hagar is followed into the wilderness and she's, she's, shown, she's shown grace. Abraham and, and Sarah fumble and the Lord shows them grace. <laughs> Um, they laugh at the Lord and, and then they, they name Isaac you know what Isaac's name means he laughs which is incredible because it just means that I mean their failure like Abraham and Sarah laugh at the Lord and that sin is forgiven they're forgiven of that and they also are able to come boldly before the throne even after their sin they're, they're, Isaac is like this reminder Every time they say the name Isaac, like, yeah, I remember when we laughed at the Lord because we didn't think that this kid was going to be around. Like, they're reminded of that. But God in his grace still allows for that sin to not, be, to not cast them out into the wilderness, but they're still welcome to come boldly before the throne of grace in a time of need is what it says in Hebrews because, because we have a sympathetic high priest, God who came down, put on human flesh, entered into this mess, and he is the seed that comes from the line of Abraham. He went to the cross. He crushed the serpent's head. He defeated death and in his death made life and immortality come to light. Amen?